Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. I wanted to give you a quick note before I started this podcast. Both of these episodes with Marnie Breaker and myself got such a strong response that Marnie and I both decided to start a new podcast called Helping Couples Heal, specifically about betrayal and relational trauma. So after listening to these two episodes, if you want more information about this topic, check us out. You can go to helpingcouplesheal.com or you can just do a podcast search in your podcast app and search for Helping Couples Heal and get more information about betrayal and relational trauma. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 22. And this is part two in our series about relational and betrayal trauma with Marnie Breaker. This podcast is a little bit longer than most. We just had so much information to share. But in the first part of the podcast, we're going to talk about the six symptoms of relational and betrayal trauma that a partner will experience when they're going through this. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about the steps that a person goes through as they move through this process of healing. So I really think you guys will get a lot of really good information from this episode. There's a lot of knowledge and wisdom and experience here. And Marnie Breaker really is able to share that in a way that is understandable, clear, and precise. So let's start the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Addicted Mind. This is episode 22, and this is the second part of our series on relational and betrayal trauma with Marnie Breaker. Marnie, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back. 
So we were kind of talking a little bit earlier, and what we thought would be a good idea is, is do a quick review of those six dimensions of trauma that partners kind of go through. And then we're going to talk about how what a partner can do to get healing, to get help, and how that can kind of look. So we're going to have that conversation. And then one thing I would say is anybody who's listening and you're just catching this episode, I'd go back an episode and listen to that first one as well, because I think that would be really helpful. It sounds great. All right. Awesome. So let's kind of do a little bit of a recap and let's talk about these six dimensions that a partner kind of goes through when they have this relational or betrayal trauma. Okay. Sounds good. So the first, so I will also say this, I think that generally therapists that specialize in partner trauma probably have their own dimensions that they look at. And I'm sure some of them include the ones that I focus on. And I know there are other clinicians that might have a longer list. This does, I'm not, not to say that somebody can't describe that they have some other form of trauma, but these are the six that I have sort of identified over the years as being the ones that I see the most in my practice and they seem okay. to be the most universal. Okay. Okay, great. So let's let's go through them. Okay. And the last time we spoke, I think I mentioned five and I neglected to mention the first one, which okay. uh, which is uh, what I call the shattered inner world. Okay. So the idea behind this is that there are essentially four beliefs that are threatened by traumatic events. Right. So these beliefs are one, that the world is benign and a source of pleasure. The world is meaningful and controllable and just. People are trustworthy and worth relating to. And that the self is worthy, lovable, good, and competent. So Dwayne, I would ask you to kind of think about those four beliefs in the context of partner trauma and the clients that you work with and and ask, do you think that that's their experience, that those beliefs are threatened when they discover that they've been betrayed by their their husband or their life partner. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, when you said those four things, it's like those are the things that they have this belief of the world and all of the thing all of a sudden these things are completely shifted and changed. And that that in of itself is traumatic. I mean, they, they don't know how to relate back to the world anymore because they thought it was this place and it turns out it was something different. Exactly. I remember seeing a quote at, at some point years ago by a partner who was equating finding out about her husband's addiction to the idea of, um, or used as a metaphor for coming home to a, a house burned down, that there's nothing left. And right. I, I think that that really sort of best sums up this, this particular dimension. It's just they, they come in the door and they feel like they have just gotten news that has shattered their entire life. And uh, nothing is as it seems. So that's that's what this particular dimension focuses on. And I think that's so true. And I, I think even partners hearing that, it, it validates their experience. Like, oh, I relate to that. This makes sense to me. Right. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So then that that's kind of the first one. And then what what's some of the other ones? So the next one is the life crisis. So the idea is that this crisis is initially caused by the the discovery of the sex addiction, and then it creates the trauma symptoms that we were talking about last time, which were those PTSD symptoms, and that leads to the seeking safety and survival. So that's the Mm -hmm. initial crisis. But then managing the sex addiction becomes another crisis in itself. So some of the issues that we see is partners desperately trying to figure out where to go for treatment. There are issues around finances, childcare, health issues, STD testing, who to rely on for support, who to tell. 
and then managing the household, things that um, a partner was once able to to take care of with all these other things, including treatment and managing the addiction itself. It becomes overwhelming. I mean, they, that, that this starts kind of taking all of their time. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's the life crisis. And that's a really hard one because partners here, they are trying to manage their PTSD symptoms, the trauma symptoms, but there's this very real overwhelming life life piece happening. What do I do and how do I manage all of this? And yeah, put it all together and hold it all together and keep it going and find treatment. And yeah, it's overwhelming. Exactly. And the part of that whole life crisis, I think it's worth mentioning that it's a direct, direct result of the discovery and the disclosure of the addiction, because there's a huge disparity between one's beliefs and their actual reality when they discover that there's been the betrayal in their life. And so trying to then, that's that, that kind of shattered, that's where the shattered world comes in, you know, and now they've got this shattered world and then this life crisis and then those two things together by themselves without any of the other dimensions that we're going to talk about, that would be overwhelming and pretty unmanageable. Right. And then it's almost like, I, I don't even want to go into the next dimensions because it's just already overwhelming. Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, I should also mention that whether the threat of betrayal continues is another part of that, th- that life crisis. As a partner is trying to find safety and figure out the treatment and all of that kind of stuff, there's still a real fear about whether there is going to be a continued threat. Right. And I think that creates more, more trauma. It's an additional sort of piece. Yeah, they're always watching that hypervigilance. Right, exactly. So then we can move on to the to the third, the third dimension, which is existential trauma. And this I mentioned when we were talking last week. And so what, what this is, is as adults, we all have this existential identity that's based on our core values and our beliefs that we've developed over the course of our life. Right. And really our identity is made up of these core beliefs around which we've created meaning of our inner and our outer world, right? Right. Yeah. So this is kind of how we see ourselves in the world. Exactly. Exactly. So trauma shatters our existential identity because what it does is it literally contradicts our values and beliefs. So for an example, as an example, if we have a core belief that we grow up with thinking that we're physically safe because our world is a safe place, and then we experience a natural disaster where our home is destroyed and loved ones are potentially injured or killed, then our core belief in the world being a safe place is completely contradicted. Yes, right. It's not what it was. It's not what I thought it was. This is completely different. Exactly, exactly. Right. So then what are the consequences of experiencing this shattered meaning, the, this existential trauma? So typically what we see is that the partner will approach this new world with distrust and fear and also experiences damage to her own relationship with herself because the thinking is, well, if she chose this person who has been lying and deceiving her, how can she possibly have faith in herself and in her own ability to make decisions? Yes. Right? So she doesn't trust herself. She doesn't trust others. And then this really creates the existential crisis, which is it's a shift in one's inner psyche that completely contradicts her existential identity or who she was prior to the trauma. And it, mm-hmm. it results in the fact that she's not the same and she does not know how to make meaning of this new reality. Right, right. Right. And when that happens, we're left feeling completely disoriented and unable to make sense of our new reality because it's not the reality which we knew prior to the trauma. Right. So yeah, they're, they're really, I mean, they're, they're stuck in that. I mean, that, that becomes really hard because their world is not the same. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a great quote I want to share by Judith Herman. Are you familiar with her work? 
No, I'm not. He's written a lot of books about trauma. Really great. I can send you some of some of those resources. But she has a quote that says, traumatized people suffer damage to the basic structures of the self. They lose their trust in themselves, in other people, and in God. The identity they have formed prior to the trauma is irrevocably destroyed. Wow. I think that that's really, that is what this, exactly what this this dimension is all about. Right. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, they lose faith in the, the, how do you say it in, in the world in their very existence of what they thought was, is, is no longer there. And it's, it becomes untrustworthy and exactly. they trust themselves anymore. Right. So when a, when a partner discovers that her spouse is a sex addict and then gets into treatment and he gets into treatment and the nature and timeline of his sexual history begins to unfold, that information contradicts her core beliefs that her spouse will always protect her, will tell her the truth, will keep her safe, et cetera. Right. And so that's, again, that's the existential trauma. It's just, there's a huge contradiction of what she believed to be true. Right. And then how do you make sense of that? How do you move forward? And then how do you know who to trust? Because if he could do this, anyone can do this. That's, that's sort of the idea behind it. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's so hard to live with. Right. Right. And hard to function. And how do you function in that? You're, you're trying to make sense of all this and it doesn't make any sense. Right. You and you know, like put the pieces together. And when so, I think we use the, the metaphor of the idea of feeling like one's been raped when they find this out. And again, I know this is kind of an extreme idea. However, I think the reason that that is something that partners will report is because, you know, when they are raped by, let's say, a stranger, if somebody experiences that kind of a sexual assault by a stranger, yeah, it might feel like the world is not safe anymore, but they haven't been assaulted by the person who they, they seek the most safety from. So, but when the rapist is a husband or a lover or their most intimate partner, then the traumatized person is really the most vulnerable of all for the, because then the person that she might ordinarily turn to for safety and protection is precisely the source of danger. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, so they can't, it's like, where do they go? And, and they, and what I see a lot in partners is they kind of want to go to that person that they thought was safe. And as soon as they go over there, they don't feel safe. So they move away. And then when they move away, they feel unsafe there because now they don't have any support. So then they move back to the person that's supposed to support them. Exactly. And they and then all the fear and the self-doubt and they're reminded of all the trauma. And it's kind of, they, it seems like they go back and forth between those two. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say that this dimension is, is one of the hardest for people. Yeah, I would imagine. Because, you know, when you think about the, the life crisis, for instance, that we were just talking about, that over time gets managed. These things get figured out. But this this one... You can't change the reality of what what we've learned, and right. So, really, having to find a way to live with this new reality and make peace with living in a world where they were not living in reality so long is very hard to to reconcile within oneself. So that's that's why I think when when in terms of the research that's been done that says that it can take you know three to five years for one to really uh, heal from this, I think I think that's that's a big portion of what's taking up that time is trying to deal with that existential crisis. Yeah, and and that's I think that you know, when you when you say three to five years, I think that's really hard for a lot of people to understand, and a lot of times hard for the offending party to kind of cope with. Like that's a long time. And it just takes a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the next dimension. Okay. So that would be emotional trauma. And the emotional trauma refers to 
the patterns of emotional abuse, essentially that an addict uses in order to keep his addiction and behavior a secret from his partner. So obviously that would include lying and deceiving and manipulating. And Mm -hmm. a big example of the emotional abuse would be a term that we use a lot in sex addiction treatment, which is gaslighting. So the idea of being so committed to keeping a secret that somebody really alters their partner's reality and makes them start to feel crazy. So an example of that would be if a partner is really suspecting that their husband, for instance, is having an affair and goes to confront him about it and says, I noticed you've been saying that you're working a lot at night and you're not coming home and what's going on? Are you are you with somebody? And he gets angry and turns it on her and says, you know, I work so hard for this family and I'm the primary breadwinner and I, I'm working my butt off every night and that's why I'm not home. And here you are asking me if I'm having an affair. You're so focused on an affair. It's probably you that's having an affair. Right. And they just totally switch the tables. Right. And then it can leave a partner questioning herself and feeling guilty and, and feeling crazy. Really, the, that, that word crazy making is what I hear most often when it comes to that gaslighting. Right. Oh, yeah. That's, and that's, that, that becomes, yeah, because they, and then that's another way in which they doubt their own senses. Exactly. Yeah. And then it could be other types of verbal abuse, anything from transferring the blame to sidetracking a conversation or shutting down a conversation, abusive jokes belittling, you know, anything that they are doing in order to sort of minimize their what, what they've done wrong and take the focus off of themselves and hide the truth of what they're doing, which is really quite egregious. Right. Yeah. And causes so much pain. So they can hide, they can hide their behavior in that. Right. And I think it's worth mentioning that there's two different types of emotional abuse. There's the overt emotional abuse, which is something that we're probably all pretty, pretty we know what that means. That would be like cursing or yelling or making threats and lashing out. And it could be, it could look like rage, but then there's the covert emotional abuse, which we actually hear about much more often in our work with sex addiction, because it's much more subtle. That's the gaslighting. Those like more sophisticated attack patterns, you know, the, it's more implicit and it's often delivered without a lot of obvious anger. Yeah, it's much harder to spot. And it's also easy for for the addict or the offending party to change it when it is confronted and go, no, that's not really what I meant. You guys are misreading it. Exactly. Exactly. And we see, I mean, I hear that all the time. And I will say, I think it's really important to to note that most partners that I've worked with, and I hear this from colleagues too, sort of validating this, is that the sex addiction or the sexual behavior, the infidelity, that of course is upsetting and devastating, but it's not the sex that's the most devastating and traumatic part for partners when it comes to betrayal. It really is the broken trust and the the lies and the secrets. Yeah. It's that shattered trust that's the most painful. And then also for a partner to remember the times that they sort of approach their their husband or their spouse and asked questions or maybe expressed some concerns and where it was really turned against them. Yes. And so that's where a lot of that anger comes from is remembering all of those patterns of abuse that they might not have really seen as abuse at the time because again, it was quite subtle. Right. And and they're also coming from that perspective of this is a safe place. So it couldn't be abuse, right? Exactly. So they and once they kind of see it and they start to understand it, that they yeah, getting really angry about like now I see it and now I see what you were doing to me. Exactly. And for anyone who is sort of new to the term gaslighting, that was that term was introduced in an old movie many years ago called The Gaslight. And I think it was like from the nineteen forties with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. 
And that's a really great movie to sort of um, highlight and, and demonstrate what gaslighting looks like. Right. What a, yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah. Great. Okay. And then what's the other uh, dimensions? So there's um, sexual trauma. And so what I would say about sexual trauma is that in the aftermath of the discovery of sex addiction, most of the attention clinically is focused on the addict. And this is more traditional because as I said, I think that today there is more attention to the partner. But traditionally, the partner's wounding was pretty much ignored or minimized. And what I have seen is that neglecting to identify and address the impact of the sex addiction on a partner's sexuality makes later restoration of healthy sexuality more challenging. And why might there be sexual trauma? For some, the reality is that sex addiction, as you and I know, is not about sex. But to a partner hearing about this for the first time, sex can often become the monster or the enemy. And so somebody who maybe had a really healthy relationship to her own sexuality and to her, her sex life with her husband or her partner um, suddenly is looking at sex as being this horrible thing and demonizes it. And so I hear from a lot of partners, tremendous amount of grief around the impact of the betrayal on their own sexuality. I think that's so important to point out and, and e- is often easily overlooked. I think it's very overlooked. I think that there's also so much here as we're talking about, this is one of the six dimensions that I'm, I focus on. So it's difficult, I think. And then there's also the, there's so much crisis that comes into the room often, especially in the early stages of treatment that it can be missed. And unless a therapist is really conscious about wanting to make sure that they're not missing it and they're, they're addressing it and seeing it, it's a big, a big miss. And as I said, I think truly can make sexual healing. I don't want to say that it's not possible, but it definitely has an impact on the, I think the, how quickly one can heal and um, how effective their healing can be. Yeah. I think that's really important to look at. Yeah. It's critical to the whole process. Yeah, I think that they need validation of sexual trauma. And I think that it's our job as a therapist to provide them with psychoeducation, to help them understand and conceptualize sexual symptoms that they're experiencing potentially as a result of the discovery. Yeah, they can begin to see some of these reactions as a result of trauma, not from their own self, if that makes sense. I mean, they get to, they can help normalize their responses. Absolutely. And, you know, healthy sexuality can't really be achieved when the partner hasn't healed the sexual wounds. And a good example of that is that a lot of times when a couple have been in therapy and in treatment for a while and there's a, a nice established amount of time of sobriety and there's some healing and they are sort of moving on in their treatment and then suddenly there's this issue of sex and the partner sort of feels they don't feel triggered as much anymore. And they really have, as I said, felt a great amount of healing, but then they're just not wanting to have sex. Yeah, they, they tend to kind of avoid, just avoid the whole topic, uh, just avoid it. Right, and so that's because if their sexual wounds have not been addressed, then it's gonna be really difficult for them to try to move forward and have a healthy sex life with, their, with the person who essentially wounded them. Right, right, yeah. So I think a lot of us have heard a really common question that the partners asked, even in the early stages of recovery by her husband is, when are we going to have sex again? And I think that that, just that question alone kind of illustrates how addicts and sometimes therapists often focus on the sex act rather than sexuality in a broader context that recognizes the depth of the partner's sexual trauma. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. So, okay, so let's keep going forward. So what's the next one? 
Let me make one last comment about the sexual trauma dynamic because I think it's pretty important. Which, So in the case of a married woman who is the victim of a rape, how soon would her husband or anyone else expect her to start having sex again? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I made it seem like it was rhetorical. But I was really asking. So most people would see her as a victim of sexual trauma with the need for time to heal, right? Right, right. So there would likely, most likely, be no expectation that she would return to a normal sexual desire or activity until at least some level of trauma resolution had had occurred and healing. And so- Right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that this needs to be explained by a therapist to an addict even when there is some healing going on in other areas and things seem to be moving forward, that this person is still on a journey of healing and there should be no expectation. And in fact, I think that a couple attempting to have sex before the partner actually is ready for it can be a very, very big mistake because then there's this negative association with sex that can stay in their mind so that in the future, trying to approach sexuality in a healthy way again can be can be quite challenging because they have this sort of negative association to that that act. Right. Yeah. No, that's very true. And I, I've seen that oh, working with couples. I've seen that process kind of take place. And and sometimes there is that kind of rush to health. They try and like get better by like trying to engage sexually because this is what the problem is. And a lot of times that yeah just furthers that wound. Right. Exactly. So there's, there's one final dimension. I think I hit the other five, and this would be the relational trauma, which makes sense <laughs> because if there's been all of this trauma that's occurred as a result of one person finding out that they've been betrayed by the other, then how do you just move forward relationally? There's been a real, some would, would define it as a violation of human connection it's an attachment wound, it's an injury, and it's very difficult to, as you and I know, it's very difficult to actually heal the relationship once there's been such a drastic um, rupture. Right. Uh, it takes a, a lot of time and patience, and especially for on the, the person who, is, who has perpetrated this, this betrayal. I mean, they have to be extremely patient and give it a lot of time and really setting the, the, the expectation. This is a three to five year process minimum. Absolutely. And if you want this relationship to work, you're going to have to give it that time to heal. Absolutely. And I tell that to people. I say, you know, this is going to take a long time and there's no shortcuts that I know of. If there were, I'd be happy to tell them to you and I wish that I could because I know how painful the process is. But there's so many factors that are involved with relational healing and I think they're all crucial and you can't really have one without the others. I mean, you could establish building blocks and start with one, but you know, an example of how do you heal a relationship that's been traumatized? Well, what I would say a huge component right off the bat is that the addict absolutely has to build the skill of empathy. Yes. And that can be very, 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 very challenging for the addict. So let's, that's kind of a, let's transition then into the kind of second part of this. And that is, once there's discovery, and then what does a partner do? And what are the steps of this process of healing? Kind of starting at the beginning, what does a partner do? Maybe they've just found this out. Okay, so you want to focus on partner healing as opposed to the relational healing, yeah? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and move into that as this whole this relational dimension has to be dealt with. But then 
Okay, so we kind of talked about these six dimensions and and we talked about the importance of all of these and, and definitely that relationship component is important too. What I'd like to do is kind of talk about how when a partner first starts this journey, maybe they've just discovered this betrayal. Where do they start and what do they do to walk through this whole process? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's There are definitely things that we do, I think, across the board for all partners, but I do want to say that each partner is in such a different situation when they come in. Do they have children? Do they not have children? Are they married or not married? How long have they been together? What are their their existing vulnerabilities? In other words, somebody who comes from a history of trauma, a developmental trauma or family of origin trauma, may be more vulnerable to the symptoms that they're experiencing than somebody who might have had a more stable background without trauma. Right, right. So it can it can really kind of depend when we start to look at it therapeutically, it can really depend at where they where they are, what their history is, their coping, their ability to cope if they've had other trauma in their life versus exactly. not supportive family structure. Um, mental illness, somebody who suffers from any mental illness. So that can change the whole whole dynamic yeah. of how treatment progresses. I mean, I guess I would say the first thing, if a partner was listening to this, the, the first thing I would say is like, reach out for help. Absolutely. Get some help. Absolutely. Get help. Yep. That's a hard one for partners because often their husband or spouse is terrified of anybody finding out. For lots of different reasons, yeah. you know, for obviously they're ashamed or they don't want people to be mad at them, certainly. But also, you know, their jobs, they might be afraid of that. Of what if they are, they have maybe, maybe they're a public figure or they're in a, a career where they, it would be detrimental to them. Their, their job would be jeopardized if people were to find out. And, and also partners also have this kind of, this self-induced fear around telling people because if they don't know that they're going to leave, which as you and I both know, it's common to stay together. Some, right. people, some marriages and relationships don't last, but many do. And so there's this fear of, I don't want to tell everybody because what if I don't leave? What if my best friend hates him? Or what if my parents want to kill him? Or Definitely. So they, they have all of that that keeps them from wanting to reach out for help, keeps them from getting support. Exactly. And that's why, so I agree with you when a partner, so if a partner is listening now, then I would definitely say reach out for help. And if you can't reach out to somebody who you can trust that's close to you, then I would say there are so many therapists out there now that specialize in working with people that are going through betrayal trauma. And, um, and I would say get into one of their offices. Yeah, call and find out and and start to get that help. So if they make that call and they in kind of a general scope, I know that everybody's different and and everybody's unique, and it's hard to say one one size fits all because it really doesn't. But in general, as a partner does that, what what are kind of the steps they move through as they kind of get on this healing journey? So they reach out for help is the first thing, but then what starts to happen? So they come in and usually they're in a state of shock and also some crisis. And so one of the very first things that I do, and I think is pretty common in this field, is to provide education to the partner about sex addiction. Sometimes they know coming in, let's say their husband has already started treatment and they've gone through an assessment process and it turns out that it is sex addiction, you know, then we can start right there. Sometimes a partner comes in and they're not sure. They have several different examples of having been cheated on. Um, so 
education regarding whatever's presenting to you. And truly, you can, you can educate somebody on trauma, partner trauma and betrayal trauma, regardless of whether their, their husband or spouse is an addict or just somebody who has a pattern of, of infidelity. Right, right. Okay, so they start to they start to kind of kind of learn learn about the process, learn what they're going through. Yes, get the, their symptoms need validation. We need to give words to what they're experiencing and to these symptoms. You know, so when they come in and they say, "I can't sleep at night and I haven't been able to eat," we want to help them explain that. You know, they're like, "What's wrong with me?" and but something is wrong. You know, you're really experiencing symptoms of trauma, and then you want to talk to them about how we can address those symptoms and what we can do. And that's where you start talking about, okay, so what are, what are your resources? Who do you have in your life that you can turn to for support? Depending on the, the severity of the symptoms, we might send somebody to a psychiatrist or to a doctor for an evaluation. Perhaps they're going to need medication. We look at what are their coping strategies and do they have any? And how can we help de- further develop those strategies one of the most important things I think for partners, as well as for addicts, but we're talking about partners right now, is a support group. So a place where they can meet weekly with other women who have experienced betrayal trauma and where they can share their experiences and their stories in, an, in a way where they're not feeling judged and where it's confidential. So I, I highly encourage partners that are not in a they have to be ready for group, obviously. So sometimes in the very, very beginning where the trauma is really, really acute, we might want to do some more individual therapy and some even some trauma work to help get them ready for group. But as soon as one can get into a group, I think that that's really important. The other thing I would say that is very important is if indeed it's been identified and acknowledged that the husband is a sex addict, I think having a conversation with that that person's therapist and doing some collaboration is really important because often, as you know, preparing a formal disclosure so that the partner can get all of the information and find out the whole truth right. is really important. And that process can't be done without the collaboration of both both therapists. And I think when you talk about disclosure, that's a it's a really difficult topic. It's a it's a very delicate process to be able to do disclosure. But that really does help a partner feel like they've got all the information. And I'll make a caveat to that. As long as the addict is in a really strong space of recovery so that they're willing to be honest because it can be so detrimental if they do that and, and, and the addict is not in a space to do it right, if that makes sense. Yeah, that could be more traumatic to a partner to kind of go through this whole process and be told you're being to be told you know everything now and I've I've completely given you the truth and then they find out in drips and drabs that there's more um, and that can make yeah. healing relational healing much more difficult for the couple because of this kind of ongoing uh, lying even in recovery right and so they kind of so as they move through this process they're getting support and maybe now they're in a, in a group and they're getting support and they're starting to get kind of these coping mechanisms, what's the next, what, what do they start to do? How do they start to heal this process? Well, I think that something that's really important because their safety has been compromised is for them to figure out what do they need in order to feel safe in this relationship at the moment. So, you know, after the disclosure process, as you know, usually partners will come up with a list of boundaries that they need in order to continue and, and try to heal the relationship. But I'm a big believer that way before the, disc- the uh, disclosure takes place, partners need to figure out 
what they need. And so I typically will work with a, with a client to make a list of things with where are the areas in your life right now with regards to your husband or your partner where you don't feel safe. And then what are the things that you need to ask or request from him that you need in, for now? And so we'll make that list and sometimes there'll be a conjoint session with the spouse and the spouse's therapist where we'll go over those, those boundaries and we'll talk about consequences that the partner has come up with that they'll implement if those boundaries are not adhered to. And I always want to make the point that these boundaries are never about punishment. Oftentimes an addict who is filled with a lot of shame about what they've done Right, right. really feel like they're being either controlled or punished. And the reality is that it's not about punishing and control. If it were, if it were about retribution or revenge, as a therapist, I would never um, collude with that or never endorse that or support that. It really is about helping the partner to find safety and to reestablish safety and to ask for her needs to get met. So I, I do think that the creating boundaries part is very important in this process. Right. And that, that really falls into that the, the attic being so critical to the partner being able to heal because it's, uh, it's, it really falls on them to help create that very, very safe space by adhering to those, those boundaries to, to help them really feel that safety. Very much so. And I think it's really important to also mention this because somebody listening could think, oh my God, my my spouse is not getting help and refusing and it doesn't look like we're going to make it. So I'm not going to heal because he's never going to help me heal. And so what I right. what I always like to say is that partners, no matter what their circumstances are, can heal. And they don't need their spouse to help them heal if they're not going to stay in that relationship. However, if they are going to stay in the relationship and have relational healing, then it is crucial that what you just said occurs, that the addict is able to really help participate, actively participate in that process of healing. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a really good clarity there because that that is so true. Yeah, really important. Because I've, you know, I've had people be afraid, like, oh my God, I'm never going to heal. He won't acknowledge what he did and he's still putting the blame on me and he's still you know, denying and lying and how am I ever going to heal? And I say, you will heal. Like We can work on your symptoms of trauma and we can help you mourn the losses that you need to mourn and to grieve. And you will be okay. I have seen, I have seen partners um, thrive in their lives who have not stayed in their relationships because the addict has not gotten help or has refused to get help or has relapsed chronically. And so the relationship ends, but they're doing wonderful because they continued to do their own work and to heal themselves. Yeah, and to get the support that they needed to, to walk through that process. That's so true. Exactly. And it's wonderful to see that and to give everybody hope that it is really, it is possible. This can be devastating, but it is possible to heal and it is possible to overcome it. And, and we've seen it. We've seen, I see it all the time. And um, in fact, it's more uncommon in my experience, to see people that where there's no hope, where people are not healing. It takes time and it is a journey, but it, it works. And I do want, I also want to mention that I think one last thing that's really, two last things actually that are really important in terms of the, the healing of partner trauma is I always like to have partners identify all the different losses that they've experienced as a result of the betrayal and and the trauma and identify those, write them down, write examples, and then really help them grieve. When we don't name all the things that we've lost, even if we're going to move forward in a relationship, the relationship's not going to be the same. It'll never be what it was 
I remember a client who came in and something that she struggled with every single time there was a birthday or an anniversary, something that required a, a card for her spouse. She struggled. She hated having to go find a card because it used to be such an easy thing in the past uh, before discovery to pick out a card. And then afterwards, she couldn't because she would read these cards and they were things like, you you know, you've always been my rock or you're the person who I can always go to for support or whatever it was. Right. It was no longer, right. It's no longer true. It's something new. And it doesn't mean that something beautiful can't be cultivated moving forward. But the reality is that there's been something lost. And I do think that needs to be grieved. And And then the last piece that I think is obviously crucial is whatever the modality that we use to work with trauma, I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are working to help our clients heal that trauma. So whether it's EMDR or somatic experiencing or sensory motor therapy or brain spotting or, you know, whatever it is or set or sending the client out to other people for adjunctive trauma work when appropriate is really important. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, because that whole, the whole body is part of that trauma process and, and healing those, that nervous system is, is so critical to the process. So Marnie, I want to say, you know, thank you for sharing all this information. It's so valuable. And we had talked earlier because you work with partners extensively and have done this work for so long that you have a lot of resources available for clients and there's a workshop that you do and I, I wanted I wanted you to be able to share that because I think it's such a resource for people so can you kind of talk about that a little bit yeah we do a workshop it's a two-day workshop called helping couples heal and it's specifically to deal with the impact of betrayal trauma and relational trauma on couples and we do it probably every four months or so um, in West LA. And the, the way that we structure the two days is that in the first day, uh, the couple comes and we talk a lot about the all of those dimensions that I was just talking to you about today. We go into a lot more detail and, and partners have the opportunity to like to share their personal experiences and give examples. And it's more of like an, of a dialogue. Um, so a combination of dialogue, some experiential work and some processing. And then the goal of the second day is to bring the couples back. And then we say, okay, now you have all this information. You are geared to understand why your partner is so traumatized and why your relationship is traumatized. Why is there so much um, fighting? Why are, is it so hard to connect? Why is it difficult to be intimate? And, and why is it so hard to rebuild trust? So you, we're giving you all this information, but then it's like, well, now what? What do you do with it? So day two is about actually providing very specific tools and interventions to help the couples leave the workshop and begin to try to actively engage the process of repairing and healing the relationship. Right. And it's so incredibly valuable and helpful. And I've had the pleasure of seeing clients having gone through your workshop and it's really incredible to to see that process. So we're going to put all that information on the show notes. And uh, we also talked about providing maybe a, a PDF of these uh, six dimensions that people can download and be able to kind of look at this and, and at least be able to kind of see it and spot it. So we're going to do that in, in the show notes and um, and provide that for everybody who's listening. Fantastic. I'll definitely get that to you. Yeah, that'll be awesome. And and Marty, once again, thank you for your wisdom and your knowledge and, and sharing this with the audience. I, I think um, it's incredibly valuable and it's such a hard topic and it's a complex topic. Yeah, it's a very complex topic. And I'm equally as appreciative of you because um, I know that you do 
you know, you do the same work and have the same passion and desire to help our clients heal. And I very much appreciate our collaboration and friendship. And thank you so much for having me back again. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for being on. And uh, we'll probably do this again because I think we've also talked about just talking about how does the how does the addict walk through this process as well. And we thought, well, we only have so much time, but we'll, we're going to have you back on uh, again in a little while and we're going to talk about that as well. So that'd be great. Um, I look forward to it. Yeah. Look out for that, everyone. And uh, once again, you can find everything at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 22 and uh, you can get everything there. Thanks, you guys, for for listening. Marnie, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 22, and all the information will be there. So check it out. Also, once again, I want to thank everybody who has left a review in iTunes. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help get us noticed and it means a lot to me and it's really wonderful to see that people are appreciating the podcast and it does really help get us noticed and get this information out there. So if you haven't done it, please take a moment of your time and jump into iTunes and and leave us a review. It's pretty easy and I'd really appreciate it. So until next time, have a wonderful week. Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-to for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.